So before the invention of television, families would huddle around in the family room around the radio to listen to music and news and uh, radio dramas acted out over the airwaves. And on one particular Sunday night, it was about 8 p.m. on October the 30th, the day before Halloween, and it was 1938. And on that infamous night, Orson Welles began his, his infamous dramatization of the 1898 H.G. Wells science fiction novel, The War of the Worlds. So in 1898, H.G. Wells put out this book, and then Orson Welles kind of did a, a radio drama version of it. And on this night in 1938, October 30th, it was his first broadcast. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, The War of the Worlds is a fictional story about an alien invasion that threatens to end the human race. And the Orson Welles version is told like a, a, a news broadcast with breaking updates and live on the scene reporters. And if you can, you can go and, and YouTube this and listen to the original broadcast. In quick succession, a series of increasingly alarming suspense-building news flashes detailed how a Martian spacecraft uh, crashed into a farm in New Jersey. Now, as the story goes, the breathless reporters are describing the horror of this extraterrestrial army of squid-like figures killing thousands of earthlings with heat rays and black clouds of poisonous gas as they steamroll um, through New Jersey and they're headed for New York City. And the cast was filled with, it was 10 cast members. There was a 27-piece orchestra, state-of-the-art um, sound effects equipment. And they impersonated astronomers and state militia officials and even high-ranking government officials. Now, at the very top of the hour, there was an announcement that this was just a radio drama, that it wasn't real, that it was a production, it was a dra uh, dramatization. But a lot of people missed that announcement at the top of the hour uh, that it was fictional uh, because they were tuned into other broadcasts, right? We think channel surfing is a modern invention. That was going on even with the radio. So at 8 o'clock, people were tuned into this other more popular uh, uh, TV or a radio show. And then about 10 minutes in, they had changed scenes. And so as people often do, they started to uh, channel surf, right? And what happened is a lot of people tuned in to this broadcast after that announcement midway through and they thought they were hearing live breaking news. They thought it was real. Many people stumbled upon the War of the Worlds mid-broadcast and thought the U.S. was actually being invaded by aliens. Now people like on the West Coast were like, oh man, that's happening over there on the East Coast. But people on the East Coast were terrified, especially hearing that these uh, alien invaders were headed in to New York City. You can imagine if you lived in New York City, what was happening. Thousands of anxious and confused listeners believed it was real. And so people started to, to flood the streets. They were calling the police department uh, for help. News stations were flooded with calls for more updates and more information. The National Guard in New Jersey showed up to report for duty. Newspapers across the nation the next morning told story after story of injuries and pandemonium at the onslaught of sudden hysteria. Now, if you make it to the end of the broadcast, you find out that it was human germs, not human guns, that defeated the armies. They didn't have this built-up immune system like we do, and it killed off the Martian invaders. And at the end of the broadcast, the director, Orson Welles, wrapped up the program with these words. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen, 
out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. Remember, the next day was Halloween. The Mercury Theater's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet, jumping out of a bush, and saying boo. So what caused the mass hysteria and for people to believe that the U.S. was actually under attack by Martians? Like what would make people actually believe that? Well, see, there's, uh, and behave that way. See, there's an inescapable reality to how you and I are wired. Every single human being is wired this way. What you believe determines how you behave and ultimately what you become. What you believe determines how you behave and ultimately, over time, determines who you become. In this case, people believed America was being invaded by aliens. They, they heard news over the, the broadcast that was being reported as such, and they, that belief started to drive their fight-or-flight behaviors. And at least for that hour, they had been transformed from safe Americans listening to a radio broadcast into victims of extraterrestrial terrorism. Do you see how a belief led to their behavior, which led to who they had become? What you believe determines how you behave and ultimately what you become. One moment, they're safe and enjoying a Sunday evening. The next minute, they believe their life is at risk, all because of a belief. Now this morning, in John uh, chapter 5, verse 18 to 47, it's on page 890 in those black hardcover Bibles uh, around you. Jesus is facing an impromptu trial by the Jewish authorities, and the charge is one of blasphemy. And they're accusing him of making himself equal to God. And rather than back off that claim, Jesus doubles down. He says, not only is it true, but it must be believed if you want to have eternal life. What Jesus is saying to these, these, uh, to these Jewish authorities, and he's saying to us, what you believe determines how you behave and ultimately who you become. Now, our text is going to divide nicely into three major sections. First, we're going to look at the doctrine to be believed. Jesus is going to give us an extended uh, uh, doctrinal statement on who he is and what he's come to do. Then, we're going to look at the defense of Christ as he makes his case, right? He's in this trial, and he's going to present witnesses and evidence to back up his claims. And then at the end, he's going to drive it down to the, uh, to the heart of the problem and call us to make a decision to believe or reject him. So we're going to look at the doctrine, the defense, and the decision. Let's start together in verse 18. John writes, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. If you were with us last week, or remember right before this happens, Jesus had just healed a paralytic who'd been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, when the Jewish authorities find out about this, instead of marveling, celebrating, asking what is the significance of this miracle, why has God graced us with this healing? Instead of marveling at that, they focus on Christ and the fact that this happened on the Sabbath. Instead of celebrating this miracle of grace, the Jewish authorities charge Jesus with a misdemeanor of doing work on the Sabbath. 
But instead of, of Jesus just taking that slap on the wrist, Jesus tells the authorities that he's innocent of breaking the Sabbath because God is his father and he's simply doing the father's work. Well, what this does is it escalates that minor charge of that misdemeanor uh, slap on the wrist kind of thing, a minor offense punishable by shameful glances. This becomes a major offense according to Jewish law, which is punishable by death. So for us to kind of understand that, this would be like going to the local courthouse on the charge of a minor traffic ticket, right? Which is a, a small fine. It, can, it won't go on your record. Uh, this is like in the middle of your hearing being charged with premeditated first-degree murder. Like it escalates that quickly. You think you're going in for this minor traffic violation and all of a sudden you're on charge for premeditated first-degree murder. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is making a staggering claim. I love how people will often say, well, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. And you just cannot change, uh, uh, turn the page in scripture after scripture after scripture in the gospels and not see that Jesus is in fact making that claim. The people who heard that claim received it as such and said, he is making himself equal to God. That's why they sought to kill him. That's what verse 18 just told us. He is claiming to be equal with God, which is to say Jesus claims to be God. Now his remarks, if they're false, are blasphemy. But if they're true, we have to make a decision about them. See, Jesus' defense isn't, guys, you're misunderstanding my words. You're taking what I'm saying and you're, you're contorting them. I didn't say I was equal to God. No, no, he's saying, you, you, not only do you misunderstand my words, you, you, you don't misunderstand my words. You misunderstand me. I am God. Therefore, it's not blasphemy for God to claim to be God, right? If you're God, you can claim to be God because it's who you are. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father." Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent them. So let's stop right there. If after hearing all that, your head is spinning, you've just been invited into this, uh, uh, this dialogue where Jesus is explaining this inter-Trinitarian relationship of how the father interacts with the sons. If your head is spinning, then you're hearing Jesus's words rightly. These are bold and staggering claims. In fact, each one of those verses deserves your time and consideration. You should, you, should be, uh, you should spend time this week actually writing those out and thinking, what is Jesus saying? What are the implications uh, of the way that the Son relates to the Father? This is actually one of the longest passages in Scripture where Jesus describes his relationship to the Father. And it's one of the, the clearest articulations of his full divinity. Here we are getting doctrine straight from Jesus's lips. It's presented to us not as some ideals to consider, but as a foundational 
reality of belief. It is bedrock. It is the foundation for building a life of meaning, purpose, and joy. You really should sometime this week go back and slowly reread through all of these verses. Steep yourselves in these truths about Jesus. Remember earlier I told you how scripture is compared to food? Just like you need to eat every day to feed your physical body, you need to eat every day to feed your spiritual body. And the way our souls are nourished is by the scriptures themselves. Malnourished Christians are joyless, they're weak, and easily tempted. If you find that some of those words describe how your relationship with Christ is, you would say, Pastor, I feel kind of joyless right now. I feel kind of weak as a Christian right now. I feel just easily tempted right now. Could it be that you are malnourished? You have not fed your soul on the words of God. Let's be a people who are joy-filled, who are strong, who are resolute against temptation because we are a well-fed people. Now, I had the gift this week of getting to steep in these verses, and let me give you a distillation of the truth claims that Jesus is making in these five verses. Number one, Jesus says that he does the work of God. He's saying the Father and the Son are totally united in their mission. It's not like the Father has a mission and the Son has a mission and they go about their separate ways. They have the same mission. They are united in that mission. God the Father works through God the Son, simultaneously and in unison. They work together. Number two, the Father loves the Son and makes known to him his plans. That's what we learn in verse 20, that God is a God of love. Foundationally and fundamentally, it is who he is. God is love, love is not God. That's who he is. And that divine love is shared between the Father and the Son. You could also say these things about the Holy Spirit. It's shared among all three members of the Trinity. But the Father loves the Son. If you cannot claim to love God but not love the things he loves, right? If you come to me and say, Clint, I really like uh, uh, you, but I don't like your wife. That would never happen. You'd say, I love your wife. I don't really love you. That, that's more likely the scenario. But go with me on this. If you were to say, I really enjoy spending time with you, but Andy, I don't want to spend any time with her, right? I'd go, well, then you're probably not going to get to spend much time with me, right? You can't seem to, to claim to love me but not love her. We're, we are a package deal, and the Father loves the Son. So you can't say, I don't like the Son, but I really love God. He's saying, then you, don't, you misunderstand the things that I love. I love my Son. And Jesus is telling these people who would have claimed to love God, you cannot claim to love God if you don't love the Son. We're a package deal. And the Father reveals his plans to the Son, and their work together should stir worship in us. Number three, Jesus has the power to give life. Jesus has the power to give life. God is the God of life. We said that earlier, right? And he has power over death. And Jesus also gives life. And Jesus also has power over death. Did you see what he did there? He said, he, he said something that they would have known to be true, that God is a God of life and that he has power of death. And he's going, the son has that same power too. All these things you attribute to God, I can do them too. Number four, Jesus renders 
divine judgment. God the Father has given, has delegated, has, has elevated his son and said, you will be the one to execute our judgment. God the Father has given God the Son the responsibility of rendering judgment. We learn that in verse 22. And then the fifth thing to see, verse 23, Jesus is deserving of our full honor. Jesus is worthy of our honor and worship, and those who reject Jesus likewise are rejecting God the Father. Now, when you consider all that Jesus just said, the conclusion is this. Jesus is God's son who is equal to the Father. Jesus is God. In the Old Testament, it is God and God alone who gives life and preserves his people from death. You read through the Old Testament, you see the reason these people have survived and have been delivered is because God is a God of life. He has sustained them. He has given them life. And he is the one who has the right to give judgment. It is God and God alone who renders judgment. And it is God and God alone who is worthy of honor and worship. And Jesus just took all of those truths, all of that doctrine, and just applied it to himself. Do you see how instead of backing away from those claims, Jesus doubles down on those claims? This is why the early church, after reading the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament, they concluded that there is one God in three persons, blessed Trinity. The New City Catechism states it like this. There are three persons in the one true and living God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. This doctrine, this belief is not irrelevant it is not inconsequential to Christianity. It is foundational to Christianity. If it's false, if what Jesus is saying is false, it's to be rejected and scorned as blasphemy. But if it is true, it is to be received and believed with great joy. Now, Jesus tells what happens when we receive and believe in him in verse 24. Look with me together. Truly, truly, Jesus goes on and says, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Don't miss that. He's saying if you hear these words, what I just said, and you believe them, you have eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. If the previous paragraph was about who Jesus is, this paragraph is about what Jesus does. Belief in Jesus leads to life in Jesus. Again, I know it feels like you're drinking from a theology fire hydrant. We've got to, to steep ourselves in these truths. But what Jesus says is you'll receive and believe this doctrine. If you'll receive and believe these truths, you will have eternal life. And here's all that entails. And he, he just outlines in quick succession what eternal life means. He said, when you stand uh, before God at the end of your life to give an account for all that you've believed and loved and done, 
you will be acquitted. You will be declared not guilty because of the righteousness and life of Christ. That's what it means to, 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 to not experience um, judgment. And not only that, you'll pass from death to life to experience a life after death. Now, get this. Life after life after death is not some disembodied state as some pseudo angel in a diaper playing a mini harp. Often we think of that, 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 that's what happens to us when we die. We get these little miniature wings. We can't be like full on angels. We get, they hand us a little mini harp and a diaper. And there's a reason why most people go, I don't know how awesome that sounds. That is not what is headed for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is not a floating, disembodied existence. It is an embodied life in a glorified, renewed body that's been resurrected that will never again be destroyed. If you're taking notes, go read 1 Corinthians 15. Paul outlines what that looks like. Again, if your head is spinning and it feels like you're drinking from a fire hydrant, then you're hearing Jesus' words rightly. He's just said, I am God and I give life and this is the kind of life I give. That at the end of your life, when you face judgment, you will pass from it because you will be acquitted. The judge himself will say not guilty because of the righteousness of Christ. And when you pass from life to death, you'll find not just a disembodied state, but a resurrected, glorified state where you live with God and enjoy him forever. Again, we don't have time. This, the, the scope of this sermon isn't to explicate all that that entails. But Jesus is saying there's more to this than you guys can possibly imagine. And you don't have to grasp the entirety of these concepts in a moment. In fact, I would say to grasp the entirety of those concepts in a moment is impossible. But here's what it should do. And I think this is Jesus's point. It should stir in you a desire to want to dive deeper into these claims and consider the claims that Jesus is making. A lot of times we, we reduce the words of Christ and say, he's basically saying the same things as all the other religions. No, he's not. He is clearly not saying that. He is saying something entirely different. And it should stir in us a desire to want to take each one of those claims and investigate them and, and see if they are real. See, the Christian life, friends, is not just what happens to you after you die. Jesus also said, if you will hear the voice of the Son of God, you will come alive, not just later, but right now. The Christian life doesn't begin at the point of death. The Christian life begins upon belief. It's not just about what happens to you after you die. The Christian life is about life right now. Praise God. Friend, apart from Christ, you are dead. But if you will hear the voice of the Son of God speaking to you right now through the pages of Scripture, and if you will believe in him, you will come alive right now and forevermore. This is the doctrine that Jesus calls us to believe. Now, if this was his opening statement in his trial, he's, he's outlining what you, might, what you need to believe about him. The next few verses outline his defense. Let's keep going. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now here's what's going on. As he moves into his defense, Jewish law required at least two witnesses to validate a testimony. Now, even though Jesus is fully God and he needs no external witnesses, he does give a proper Jewish defense. And so his first witness, he calls to the stand John T. Baptist. And he reminds them that formerly they had sent a delegation to John. You could read about this earlier in the Gospel of John. There's Jewish authorities that show up. Glad that. Yeah, good. All right. You never know when you write these things, right? Earlier in the Gospel of John, he, they, they sent a, a delegation to investigate about John. That's what he said. Remember, you guys sent a delegation there. And you, you sent these folks to, to investigate into John's ministry, to look into Jesus and to figure out if the Messiah had come. And here's what John's conclusion was. He said this in John 1.34. I have seen and borne witness that this Jesus is the Son of God. And they heard that testimony. He's, it's like he's pulling up this affidavit that John had signed and said, my conclusion after investigating and looking into the life of Jesus is that this man is the son of God. John, Jesus says that John was like a lamp. A lamp doesn't have its own energy and its own life, but when it's plugged in and connected, it gives light and it's burning bright in the darkness of the wilderness to give all that, uh, so that all could see that Jesus is the son of God. He's saying that John's testimony was like a lamp and it burned bright in a dark and weary land so that you would see Jesus is the son of God. Now Jesus calls his second witness to the stand. Will the God the Father please take the stand? Verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. The very works that I'm doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. See, John gave a witness to, to who Jesus is, and so did the Father. Jesus says, the Father himself has given witness about me. This is a reference back to the baptism of Christ, where God the Father audibly declared, this is Matthew three seventeen, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. If you go back and read Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, God the Father shows up and says, make no mistake about it, this is my son, and I am well pleased with him. So, so far, Jesus has called two pretty stellar witnesses, right? The prophet that bridged the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and God the eternal Father to the stand. Then he brings in his evidence he points to his signs and miracles, the works that he's accomplished as proof that he is the son of God. And Jesus is saying, go read your Bibles. The scriptures themselves point to me. And all of the evidence, if you were to look at the scriptures, if you were to look at the things that I've done, all of them point that I am the son of God. So if you take the, the last miracle he just performed, the healing of the paralytic, and you combine that with scripture, it's like he's saying, look at exhibit A. Look at the man who was healed from 38 years of paralysis. Did the pool at Bethany heal him? No, I healed him. And who has the power over disease and paralysis? They would have all said, only God has that kind of power. And he's going, okay, so are you connecting the dots? Only God has the power to heal 38 years of paralysis. 
I just healed this man from 38 years of paralysis. A plus B equals C. I am God. And if you had paid to the attention to the scriptures, you'd have seen that the prophets spoke about a day when Messiah would come and the lame would walk. Isaiah 35, four through six. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What happens when the Messiah comes? The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What he's saying is when Messiah comes, it will be like a, a spring coming forth in the wilderness. You ever seen those nature shows? When it rains, what happens in the desert? It blooms overnight, right? The land that has been parched from, uh, from water, it blooms overnight. And he's saying when the Messiah comes, you're going to start seeing desert blooms. People that you looked at and said they were hopeless, the mute, the deaf, the lame, you're going to see Messiah overturning that work of sin and disease and death. Now, this is just one example. The prophets gave all kinds of examples of what to expect when God showed up. Here we see Jesus pointing specifically to the lame man that would be restored. At the very least, when they saw that Jesus had healed this man, it should have given them pause to consider if Jesus was the Christ, not put him on trial. Now, at this point, Jesus' defense turns into an offense and he says this in verse 37. His voice you have never heard. He's talking about God the Father. In his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come that you may have life. This is a massive indictment. He's saying, you have looked to the scripture. You've essentially elevated the scriptures to God. You think they have life instead of looking at what they point to. Jesus says, part of the reason that you fail to recognize me as the son of God is that you've grown mute to the voice of God. You don't hear from him anymore. You've lost spiritual eyes to see. You're blind to him. You don't have the word of God abiding in you anymore. His indictment is that they have turned scripture into an end instead of a means. Scripture is a means to God, not the end, right? The, the whole point of scripture is that it leads us to God, not that it is God. They had looked to scripture to provide life instead of searching the scriptures to see what they were supposed to see. See, they did it with scripture, but it doesn't have to be scripture. That's just one good gift from a good God that you can turn into an idol. But we can take literally anything that's meant to point us to God and make it the point. And that's the definition of idolatry. When scriptures speak about idolatry, a lot of times we think about these little wooden carved images. Certainly that is a, a form of idolatry. But our form of idolatry in this day and age is much more sophisticated than that. So we don't bow to little um, uh, uh, statues and figurines. We bow to all sorts of other kinds of things. We take the good gifts of God and make them the object of our worship. And when that happens... 
we stop abiding in God. And when you are not abiding in, receiving from God, you no longer have access to his life. We become deaf to his word and blind to what he's doing. This is the whole point of Psalm 115, verse 4 through 8. The psalmist writes, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Look at this. Those who make them, talking about idols, become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Now here's what he's saying. We can't help but become like what we worship. Whatever has your highest attention, whatever has your greatest affection, whatever has your highest allegiance, you will become like them. What we believe determines how you behave and ultimately it impacts who we become. Theologian G.K. Beale says it like this. What people revere which is another way to say what you worship, they resemble, either for ruin or restoration. That's what that uh, text in Psalm was saying. Just like they're wooden carved idols, right, that have faces and ears and, and eyes, right? You have this little figurine, but his, they don't see. Even though they have eyes, they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have hands, but they cannot move. They have feet, but they cannot walk. And if you worship idols like that, you will become like that. Psalm 115 is an indictment on those who worship idols, that you will become like them. What we believe to be of greatest value starts to determine and drive our behavior. And ultimately, we are shaped and formed into that image of what we're worshiping. So let me unpack this a little bit. If your highest value is your appearance, like what, how you present yourself, you will eventually become vain and self-centered. You see how that works? If you're, if you're worried about how you appear to people, you eventually become self, so self-focused that you're vain and self-centered. If you worship money, you will become greedy, oppressive, and materialistic. If you worship what people think of you, right? This fear of man of, of wondering what everyone is saying or thinking about you or, or wanting that, uh, that approval, you will become envious of other people around you and you will become incredibly fragile. One word can break you. If you overvalue relationships, you'll become codependent and manipulative. Your whole sense of worth will be determined on someone else. And because you're always trying to manage those relationships, you'll try to manipulate them to go the way that you want. Do you see what you worship? You will become. Now, none of those things are wrong. You should care about your appearance, right? We don't want to be schlepping around. Money is, is, is important. You got to have it to live. It's important to have some sense of care about what people think about you. Relationships are incredibly valuable, but when they become your God, they can never satisfy you. They can never do that which you are putting on them. We could keep going. If you worship intellect and academia, you'll become proud and condescending and conceited. We could, the list goes on and on. You become what you worship, either for your ruin or restoration. 
And because these Jewish authorities looked to Scripture for life, they overvalued it. They had elevated it to a place of God. Instead of the God of Scripture, they became deaf and blind to the things of God. So my friends, I have to ask, what are you trusting in? What has your highest attention? What has your highest allegiance? What has your greatest affection? And would you be so honest to, to follow that to its logical end? Are you becoming like those things, either for your ruin or your restoration? Are you becoming the person you want to be? And if you find that you're not becoming the person you want to be, just do some reverse engineering. Ask, is it maybe because I'm worshiping something false? I'm not on the trajectory I want because I'm not pointed in the right direction. Jesus' defense is as strong and as bold as his doctrine. It begs us, it calls us to do something with it. You have to decide. Now let's look at Jesus' closing statement as we make our decision. Verse 41, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, will you not receive him? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? As Jesus is, brings his closing statement in, he says, I do not receive my glory from people. Now, what does that mean to receive glory? To receive glory, when we talk about, uh, the Bible talks about receiving or giving glory, what we're talking about is the giving and the receiving of worth. When you give glory to something, you're ascribing worth and value to it. And when you receive glory, people are, are, or, or, or things are, are saying you're worthwhile, you're valuable, you're good, right? So when you glorify something, you ascribe value, meaning, and worth to it. And what Jesus just said, he says, listen, my worth, my value, my identity is not connected to people, but to God. So I'm not receiving my worth from, from people. I, I get all the worth I need from God. And what Jesus is doing is he's getting at the heart of the problem by, by, by lasering into the problem of the heart. What he says is, guys, you don't have the love of God within you. You are seeking and being filled from a different source. You don't receive glory from God because you're, you're too busy receiving it from each other. See, the heart-like nature abhors a vacuum. You ever heard that, that phrase, nature abhors a vacuum? See, the heart doesn't like to be empty. It has to give love and receive love constantly. The heart is always looking to receive glory, and the heart is always looking to give glory. Your heart, by definition, the way you are wired, just like you and me, it ascribes worth and validation, and it desperately at the same time is looking to find worth and validation. We are all doing this constantly every single day. We're constantly looking at things and saying, these are the valuable things. These are the good things. These are the worthwhile things. And we're constantly looking for that same validation for ourselves. The heart must be filled and it must be emptied. And this cycle goes on constantly. It's why we say around here at Seven Mile Road, you don't get a choice if you will worship. Your only choice is what you will worship. We are worshipers. Every single person gives glory and wants to receive glory. And that is, that is tied to the very heart of what it means to worship. And what Jesus is saying is without the love of God within you, you will look to be filled by something else. If you're not filled with God, you want to be filled by something else because the heart cannot stay in a state of vacuumness. It must be filled. 
And if your heart is absent of the love of God, you will look to have it filled by something else. And whatever that thing is, is your identity, it is your worth, and it is your highest value. Would you be so courageous this morning to ask yourself what grounds your identity? Who are you? I mean, is there a more basic and more important question? Who are you? What makes you who you are? What is your anchor? What anchors your heart? What keeps you from spinning off into chaos? These are the questions Jesus is asking us this morning. And they are crucial to the question of will we believe and follow Jesus? See, we often think that our decisions about what we'll believe are purely rational uh, 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 questions. But you are not, friends, a brain on a stick. You are not just your brain. The decision-making process that everyone faces is a complicated calculus that involves your whole being, your head, your heart, and your hands. When you make decisions, you, you make decisions with reason and logic, with emotion and feeling, experience and desire, and all of that mixes together as you process and make your decisions. And Jesus is summing up the crux of the matter. That's why he said, you will not believe in me when you're seeking to find your glory from another and not from God. He's saying you cannot even rationally consider if you'll follow me if your heart is tied up in some other relationship. He's saying the more concerned you are with the opinions and approval from your peers, then you will be uh, 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 disconnected from the approval and the worth of God. When you're seeking glory from man, you cannot seek it from God. What are you seeking glory from? Whatever that thing is, if it's not God, it will keep you from worshiping him. It will keep you from believing in him because your heart is tied up. It's too filled with something else. You have to empty it of that other thing so it can be filled with God. Now let's see how these last few verses end. Jesus says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writing, how will you believe my words? At the end of the trial, Jesus acquits himself and offers a final indictment of his own. And ultimately, everyone who is standing there stands accused. And I think it's a brilliant move by Jesus. He says, hey, for what it's worth, I'm, I'm not accusing you today. Moses accuses you. He takes the, this, this prophet that they would all, all, all held in high esteem and says, Moses says, you've got it wrong. The greatest prophet in the Old Testament, Moses, the one who wrote the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, he's saying, Moses himself accuses you for your lack of faith. Moses' last farewell sermon in the book of Deuteronomy, he said that one day there would come another prophet, a prophet that was even greater than him which is to say you should be looking for this greater prophet. And it's like Moses was saying, look, I, I know I did a big deal. I know I led a, 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 a massive thing, the Exodus, and it was, it was amazing. You once were a, a people of slavery and harsh labor, and now you're the people of God. But there is coming one, a greater prophet, a greater Moses. 
Moses brought about an exodus from slavery, but this greater one, his exodus would be of a greater glory than the one out of Egypt. Instead of delivering one nation from slavery of harsh labor, there would come one who would deliver people from every nation out of the ultimate slavery of sin and death. And friends, don't miss this. Jesus is looking at a group of men who have built their entire worth and value on their knowledge and understanding of scripture. And he's saying to them, to miss seeing that Jesus pointed to me is to miss the entire point. To look at this group of learned men, scholars of scripture and saying, if you miss this, it means you know nothing of the Bible. And because of that, Jesus says, it's Moses who accuses you today. And friends, this can happen to anyone. Jesus could be standing right in front of you and you can miss him. If your allegiance and your attention and your affections are centered on something else, Jesus could be right there in front of you and you will miss him. That's why Jesus' last question isn't just for them, it's also for us. He's asking, will you believe in Jesus? What will you make of him? And the way you answer that question has massive implications on your life. Remember how we started this whole thing? What you believe determines your behavior and ultimately determines who you become. Because when you believe in Jesus, he will begin to shape your desires. You will start to live like he lived. And ultimately, he is committed to making you like him. And that's the hope of the gospel. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. When we believe that our only lasting glory and hope comes from the Father through the Son, we will be transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Belief in God drives your behavior and changes who you become. What we behold, what we believe, what we worship will either ruin us or it will restore us. I wanna close with this lengthy quote from C.S. Lewis because C.S. Lewis, right? In his essay entitled, What Are We to Make of Jesus Christ? He says this, the things Jesus says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say, this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But Jesus says, I am the truth and the way and the life. He says, no man can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you'll inevitably be ruined. Give yourself away and you'll be saved. He says, if you're ashamed of me, if when you hear this call, you turn the other way, I also will look the other way and when I, when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, friends, throw it away. If it's your eye, pull it out. If it's your hand, cut it off. If you put yourself first, you will be last. Jesus says, come to me, everyone who is carrying a heavy load, and I will set that right. Your sins, all of them, are wiped out. I can do that because I am rebirth. I am life. Jesus says, eat me, drink me, I am your food. And finally, Jesus says, do not be afraid, for I have overcome the whole universe. C.S. Lewis says, that is the issue. What are we to make of Christ? Friends, there is no question of what we can make of him. It's now entirely a question of what he intends 
to make of us. You must either accept or reject this story.